It makes no difference what you believe, just as long as you're sincere. Ever hear anybody make that statement? Is that right? Is sincerity the most important value when it comes to our beliefs and our actions? Or is it possible that that view could be disastrous? Consider a nurse who administers the wrong medication, sincere but tragically wrong. Or the man who shoots at a suspected burglar turns out to be his daughter coming in late, sincere but deadly wrong. The point is that it takes more than sincerity to make something true. Sincerity does not equal truthfulness. Faith in a lie will always lead to disastrous consequences, whereas faith in the truth is never misplaced. It really does matter what you believe. So far in the letter of 1 John, the Apostle John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been warning the church about various conflicts. First, it was the conflict between light and darkness. Second, it was between love and hate. And now John turns to the third conflict, which is the conflict between truth and error. Before he explains the consequences of turning from truth to error, John emphasizes the seriousness of the matter. And he introduces to us in this letter two terms, two very special terms, the last hour and Antichrist. Let's go to the book of 1 John, chapter 2. And if you have want to grab a Bible in front of you there, page 1302. 1 John, chapter 2. And I want you to look to begin with at verse 18. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. John says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Both terms make it clear that Christians are living in an hour of crisis. That they have to be watchful, careful, vigilant. The last hour is a term that reminds me that a new age has dawned in the world. John alludes to it earlier in this chapter. If you just look over at verse 8, John talking about love, but says at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I mean, since the resurrection of Christ, God is doing a new thing in the world. In a sense, all history since then is preparation for the end. And here's the truth. There's nothing more that God can do for the sinner. Why? How could that be? Well, the only reason is this. Jesus' death was sufficient for all the sins of every person born from Adam and Eve up until the last human being that will ever be born on earth. The writer of the book of Hebrews puts it this way, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So I don't know about you, but it raises a question in my mind. If it was the last hour in John's day, then why hasn't Jesus come back? Why has that not already happened? Well, first of all, I think we need to remember that God is not limited by or bound by time. God works inside time. He works in time, but he himself lives outside of time. So he's not bound then or forced by circumstances to operate within which a time frame in which we would like him to operate or seemingly he should operate. The second thing is that we need to consider God's eternal love and his eternal purposes. If you just turn back to the book right before this one, to the book of 2 Peter chapter 3, look what the apostle writes. 2 Peter 3, starting at verse 8. And he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Earlier in the chapter, he says, oh yeah, there are people that are saying, oh, he's coming back, but he hasn't come back. What's the deal? Well, his time is not our time. And then verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God's working time frame is not ours. There's a greater purpose that he has in redemption of his creation. But we do need to read on to verse 10 when he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But the day will come. There is a certainty in God's mind and in God's plan. And two things are true. Number one is that the end will come. That is a certainty. The second thing is that the end will come in God's way and in God's timing. Some of you a little older may remember a book written long ago. It's called The Fate of the Earth. And it was all about nuclear proliferation. And, you know, there was all this fear, you know, that we're going to all blow up and everything. But the reality is God's going to determine how this thing ends. It is going to end, but he will determine. He may use that, but he will determine how it comes to an end. And all of human history will be brought to an end. It will be consummated in Christ. Jesus will come back a second time. In his first coming, it was redemptive in purpose. But in the second coming, it will be for judgment and then restoration. But what we need to see is that there are moral and ethical consequences if we understand and believe what the Apostle Peter was writing. So look in the text starting at verse 11 in 2 Peter 3. He says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since we are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace 
and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Boy, don't we understand that. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Truth matters. And there are consequences. There should be consequences for God's people who know and believe the truth. Now, the last hour began in John's day. I think probably we could say it begins with the ascension of Jesus into heaven after his resurrection. And it's been growing in intensity ever since. So I think we should understand the concept of the last hour, not to be describing a kind of time, or it does describe a kind of time, not a duration of time. It's not how long. So in a sense, we are living in this kind of time. That's what we mean. It describes the situation, the circumstances, the conditions of the end times, not necessarily the timing of the end times. So in that sense, Christians since the founding of the church at Pentecost have always been living in the last hour, in the last days. And so it's important what you believe and why you believe that. Now the second term, Antichrist, is used in the Bible only by the Apostle John. He uses it in verse 18, back in 1 John chapter 2 that we already read, when he talks about you've heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many antichrists have come. He uses it down in verse 22 when he writes, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And then he uses it also in chapter 4, verse 3, where we read, In every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. And then the apostle mentions it one more time in his second letter, verse 7, when he writes, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So when we put it together, it seems that when the term antichrist is being used, that there are three things that are in mind. Number one, it's a spirit in the world that opposes and denies Christ. Second, it is a, the false teachers who embody this spirit of Antichrist that denies Jesus. And then third, it's a person who will head up the final world rebellion against Christ. The spirit of Antichrist has been present in the world ever since Satan declared war on, in heaven against God before the creation of the world. It lies behind every doctrine, every false philosophy in the world today. Now, the prefix anti can possibly have a dual meaning. It might mean against, against Christ. It might mean instead of, instead of Christ. But either way, we see that there are two forces in the world today. One is truth working through the church by the Holy Spirit, and the other is evil working through the energy of the evil one, Satan himself. So does it really matter what one believes? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. But we're living today at a time in which truth is under attack. Absolute truth is denied. It, it's, it's disregarded. It's discarded. And there's a crisis of truth in our world. And sadly, that crisis is also within the ranks of Christians and even those in the church today. More and more are holding to a view that truth is relative, that it is private, that it is subjective. And therefore, truth is in the eye of the beholder. And what is truth for you is great. What's truth for me, as long as you're sincere. David Wells, in his excellent book, No Place for Truth, Whatever Happened to Evangelical Theology, explains how we must view truth if we are to be faithful to the biblical witness. Notice what he writes. A Christian mind sees truth as objective. The Christian mind has sought and found a way to understand life in the light of revelation, that is, what God reveals. The modern mind rejects that light and turns instead to private experience for illumination. The Christian mind accepts God's pronouncements concerning the meaning of life as the only true measure in that regard. The modern mind rejects such revelation as the figment of a religious imagination. Today, reality is so privatized and relativized that truth is often understood only in terms of what it means to each person. A pragmatic culture will see truth as whatever works for any good for, for any given person. So you hear people say, well, as long as if it does it good for you, great. If you want to believe that because it does something for you, wonderful. There's no concept that's been thrown out that there is absolute truth that everyone is bound by, whether you believe it or not. But when absolute truth is declared non-existent, then any belief becomes normalized, accepted, and welcomed. And so sincerity becomes such a, a major measuring stick as long as you are sincere. But you know what? You can be sincerely wrong as well as sincerely right. What John goes on in his letter here in this passage to describe the marks of a false teacher who's controlled by the spirit of Antichrist. So we, we can look and see what was going on in his day and then try to extrapolate that up to today. And he did three marks of this person. One is departs from the fellowship. Look at verse 19 in 1 John chapter 2. John writes, They went out from us, speaking of the false teachers, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, the us here is referring to true believers, those who believe the truth about Jesus. And John reminds the people that not everyone who is a member of the assembly is a member of the fellowship. That there's a difference there. These people were in the assembly, they gathered with these believers, but they were not of the fellowship. You know, there are a lot of people sitting in churches all across America today who are in church, but who are not in the family who are not God's children, who have not yet come and really trusted in Christ and abandoned any other way of having salvation. Uh, John's pointing out a hard thing for us today because, you see, the world today, it's all about inclusivity, isn't it? We accept everybody, and so we begin to cast that over to God and think, well, God is the same then. God loves everybody, which he does, 
But in the end, he's going to say, oh, it doesn't matter really what you did. It really doesn't matter what you believed. You go ahead and come in. That's not the gospel. That's not the truth of Scripture for us. Now, I think some of the confusion and false security over the years has come from an observation that's been made in our country. You know, we're, we're not a Muslim country. We're not a Jewish country. We're not a Hindu or a Buddhist country. And therefore, we must be a Christian country. Now, it is true that we were founded on, on, on Judeo-Christian values and beliefs. That is true. But we're not a Christian country. We have a Western frame of reference. But what extrapolates out of that is, therefore, if I go to church in America, then I must be a Christian. And, and, and as somebody always, you know, the old thing, well, does that mean if you go into your garage, it makes you a car? Because it's sort of the same mentality that somehow that association is there. The scriptures tell us that there are three characteristics of a true believer, and all true believers. First of all, is that we share the same love. Look in 1 John 3, verse 14. John writes this, We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. We share the same love. We share the same nature. Peter writes in his second letter talking about God's divine power and says, By which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Every believer who belongs to God has a spiritual nature within them that comes by virtue of a spiritual birth. And then thirdly, is we share the same spirit. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Romans in chapter 8, and he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now remember, the theme of this letter is fellowship. Fellowship with God. And that word fellowship simply means to have in common. But the counterfeit Christian that's mentioned here in 1 John 2 did not remain in the fellowship. You know, it, it has to do not with staying in the church, but remaining in the fellowship. And evidence of the fact that they were not truly in the fellowship was the fact that they departed from them. Well, here's the second mark. It has to do with denying the faith. Let's pick up in the text, 1 John 2, verse 20. John writes, But you've been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. See, there's one key question that comes up. It is the key question that comes up over and over and over again, wherever we are in conversation with people, and it's this. Who is Jesus? Who is he? The answer will define one's doctrine and whether that doctrine is true or false. 
It's the defining question of the relationship and, and, and issues of Jesus and all the world religions, of Jesus and all the cults. Who is he? Now, a follow-up question is, but by what means do we know that? Now, the false Christians of John's day, specifically the Gnostics, they used two special words to describe their spiritual experience. One was knowledge, and the other was anointing. And what they said and what they claimed was that they had a special anointing from God which gave them unique knowledge. Sounds an awful lot like what I hear when I turn on a lot of television preachers and faith healers. They have a special anointing of God and therefore they have a special word of knowledge for you. It usually comes with a price. But look what John pointed out in verse 20. You've been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Now, it's not that we can't or that we shouldn't learn from other people. God gifts other people to be able to teach and direct and guide in truth in Scripture. But it is that the Holy Spirit lives in every believer. That's the anointing that every believer has. And because He lives within you, the one who inspired the writing of Scripture can open your heart and your mind to understand and to discern truth. We take advantage of others who teach us. We take advantage in reading books of people who, who have had insights. But you don't need that to thrive as a Christian. God has lives within you and opens your mind to understand Scripture. Look at verse 22. Let's go on. Um, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the end that Christ who denies the Father and the Son. What's the denial here? I think it is that the denial that Jesus alone can save. That he is truly the eternal Son of God, God of very God, God in the flesh, that that's who he is. Now, there are many people today who say, well, you know, we worship the same God, I worship God, your God, Jesus. Uh, no, we don't see eye to eye with, about Jesus, but you know we worship the same God. Is that possible? John says it's not. John says it's not possible. In fact, to deny Jesus, he said, is to deny God the Father. Look at something Jesus himself said. It's recorded in John chapter 5. He said, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You cannot hold a high view of the Father and a low of view of Jesus the Son. It is incompatible. It is in conflict. And Jesus put his finger on that himself in his life. Now, contrary to those that deny Jesus, those who hold to the false doctrine, contrary to those, John says that God gives a gift to those who believe the truth, who believe in him. Notice what he says there in verse 24 again. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he's made to us, eternal life. What a thought. Eternal. I don't know how you even get your fingers around that one. I mean, I have a hard time going from day to day. But eternal life. What is eternal life? I think part of the problem is that we misunderstand 
know, there's a defining verse about the nature of eternal life that we've got in John's Gospel, chapter 17. It's near the end of Jesus' earthly life. The night he's going to be betrayed, he's in the upper room. And while he's spoken these words, and after he speaks these words to his disciples, then he prays to his Father. We call it the high priestly prayer. But look at this from John 17. Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given to him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. You want to know what eternal life is? It's true knowledge of God. It's true knowledge of Jesus Christ. And if I understand that correctly, that means that eternal life begins the moment that you put your trust in Christ. I think growing up, you know, certainly I had all this idea, well, that happens maybe when you die, right? That there's something out there called eternal life. But no, Jesus says eternal life begins the moment you have a true knowledge of God and of Him. So the moment we place our trust in Christ, eternal life begins. Eternal life has more to do with quality of life than quantity of life. It's it's the life of God, it's the life of Christ, it's the life of the Holy Spirit that lives within you. That's what eternal life is. Look again at the Apostle Peter's teaching in his second letter. He says, God's divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us his precious promises and great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. A true knowledge of God, a true knowledge of Christ is the pathway to salvation. And it is therefore the acquisition of the divine nature. Without that knowledge, you cannot be a true believer in God. You cannot be a possessor of eternal life. You must have that knowledge. Now here's the third mark that John gives us, and that's the deceives the faithful. Reading starting at verse 26, John says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. John warns the church about the intentions of false teachers, and that is that they intend to deceive. Their claims cannot stand up against truth and the light of truth. Uh, Paul writes this to Timothy in his first letter, and he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. I guess it shouldn't surprise us that, that this comes by way of deception. Jesus, uh, Jesus or Paul himself says that, that Satan is the deceiver of the brethren. It's one of the primary tools that he uses is to deceive us to get us to begin to see falsehoods and errors rather than the truth. Uh, really should look at one passage. I'm going to have you turn back to the book of 2 Corinthians. Just go back, page 1232 in the Seatback Bible, uh, because we have quite an insight here. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Start at verse 1, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Paul says, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. 
For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Listen, he's writing to Christians here. I'm concerned that you might be led astray. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. When he writes to the Galatians, he talks about if anybody comes and preaches a Christ different than the one that I did, let him be accursed. Pretty strong stuff. But now we need to drop down verse 13. And Paul says, Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. Wow. I mean, the reason why people are often led astray is because it is close to the truth, but not the truth, right? I mean, counterfeit money looks just like the real thing. You and I probably would never pick it out, what the difference is. You know, I think you'd be a little more suspect if someone handed you a $100 bill and it had a picture of Batman on it. Probably would think there's something wrong with that. You know, it's got to be close to this thing. And and error comes alongside truth so often it's closely identified. But this tells us something about Satan. He imitates the works of God. And so you see it and you think, oh, it must be right. But he produces counterfeit apostles who preach a counterfeit gospel that produces a counterfeit Christian who depends upon a counterfeit salvation. And we're warned about that. So how do we detect the counterfeit from the real? The scriptures are very clear. Depend upon the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Every believer has received the anointing of the Spirit, and it is that Spirit who illuminates our understanding of truth. Now, I think the key to the whole passage is down in verse 28. If we go back to 1 John, Chapter 2 and verse 28. And John says this, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame as his coming. And you know that he's righteous, and you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Abide, remain grounded, rooted, firmly established in Christ. And when you do that, there are two consequences. The first is that we will await with eager anticipation His coming. We don't await His coming in fear. We don't await His coming in shame. But we await it eagerly because there is no judgment for those who believed in Christ. The judgment for your sin happened at the cross. You will never stand in judgment for any sin you've committed. It was dealt with at the cross. Now, there are consequences to our works, and our works are judged. We know that. 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. There will be that, but not about our sins. Second, John says we will practice righteousness. What is righteousness? It's living in the right. Living in the right. But you know what? It doesn't happen by chance. It doesn't just happen. There is effort on our part, effort under the power and energy of the Holy Spirit as we partner with God in this thing called spiritual growing, spiritual maturity. I want to just have you look at this passage out of Hebrews because it's a good reminder of that. 
He says, And about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. If you set yourself to grow in Christ, to become more firmly rooted and grounded in Him, depending on the Holy Spirit to work in you, giving you a heart of obedience, you will be equipped to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is true, what is false. God has revealed His truth to us in His Word. And His indwelling Spirit, who is renewing our minds, helps us to understand the truth of His Word and take it and apply it. But, as John writes, we've got to be aware that there are others who will seek to take you off track, seek to distract you, seek to to totally distort God's word. Be on the alert with that. Know the word so when you hear something, you can say, no, I don't think that's right. And then you go to the word and you have it confirmed. So we need to be wise. We need to be discerning as people. That's what John's trying to say to us. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit that comes to live within us when we trust in you. And I pray that we would be grounding ourselves in you and in your word more and more, that we would be able to spot error, uh, that we would remain convinced of ourselves of the truth that you've given to us, and that through that you would help us to be bearers of truth to others. For this I pray in Jesus' name, amen.